also have two children. And so now let's welcome our deans and listen to their conversation. Tom, uh, we're in an institution which is a seat of higher learning, uh, and we're an engineering school in that institution. Which an engineering schools, uh, uh, the place of engineering schools in American universities is something that it's taken me a long time fully to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're the leader of that institution. So in beginning to talk about leadership in difficult times, I wonder if you could say a little bit about what drew you to this position uh, and what you see leadership of an engineering school at a research university as being fundamentally about. Well, let's see. Uh, let me go all the way back into a group into this position. So uh, first I want to note on Gaston's introduction, that it's, it occurred to me that that transition just occurred, a milestone for me. That's the first introduction that, that described when I got here that didn't include the month. So it must mean I've been here long enough now that, <laughs> that I, I see I'm no longer new. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, but, but to go back, uh, I started out, uh, I graduated with a PhD in, in physics from, from UCLA, and I thought I was going into industry. And uh, I was headed to Bell Labs, and uh, well, the weather was bad in New Jersey, but that wasn't really the reason. The real reason was that there was a, a, a research program beginning experimentally uh, on the topic I'd done my my thesis on, and uh, I was persuaded to stay for, for a year. So what originally <coughs> drew me into academia was this, the, the interest in the research. And then uh, I caught the bug of working in a team, and then I uh, began to teach. And I began to appreciate the, what Socrates said, actually, is that uh, one of the purest forms of happiness, or I think he said the purest form of happiness, is sharing with someone else something you've learned. So there's that, that joy that comes, comes from teaching. And then uh, I began to appreciate uh, administration and the role that it plays. I, I started to, to uh, appreciate having a bigger impact. And I started to appreciate the role of higher education institutions in, in society. And uh, it's, it's more than, than uh, the satisfaction you get from, from helping young people realize their potential, which is the intrinsic initial motivator. But beyond that, we play a huge role in society. And I've always believed that the role of the research university in particular was to, to be the repository of knowledge for all of humanity. And that sounds a little bit like I, I believe a university is a library because it sounds like a repository. But, but I really believe that, that what we know about uh, particularly uh, science, but also even the humanities and in performance, one can't read about it in library books. So it has to be transmitted from mentor to mentee. And that's what we do in our, in our faculty lives. And then I was also drawn to the notion that, that research universities are, are serving an additional purpose uh, above that traditional role that they've served for a couple of centuries. And that is um, a source of new knowledge ever since World War II and, and the investment of the federal government in, in uh, basic research. And, and I also believe that there's a new role on the horizon for research universities, and I, I was interested in contributing to that. And we can talk about that a little bit more, more as well. Let me, let me stop you, because the history that you've told there, particularly this period after World War II, mm -hmm. could you say a little bit more about yeah. the significance of that period? Yeah, so it was, it was in that, after World War II, that, that we began investing about 0.2% of uh, gross domestic product in, uh, in, in basic research. And that really transformed research universities from repositories 
to uh, discovery, uh, it, discovery institutes. Uh, that you know, currently is uh, something like $48 billion a year in um, basic research funding, more than half of that going to, to universities. And uh, you know, a lot has been said about the connection between that and long-term economic growth. So that changes, somehow subtly, that changes the role of someone like yourself from a disseminator of knowledge mm -hmm. to, I mean, obviously you still have that role, mm -hmm. but you're now primarily a creator of knowledge. Right, right. And, and uh, Duke as a university has seen a, a further role. If you look at the strategic plan for Duke, it says knowledge in the service of society. So it's already foreshadowing that new role that I was going to refer to, which is that, you know, after World War II, universities became creators of knowledge, but now Duke's going further and saying that it's knowledge in the service of society, and it's that connection that's so uh, completely different from the traditional ivory tower, right? That's, that, that's the uh, antithesis. The change that. is that the knowledge that's in the service of society isn't knowledge that's always been there. Right. The key to the knowledge in the service of right. society is it's new knowledge right. that's in the service, and that's... And that's seeing leadership not as necessarily being the kind of guardian of the, mm -hmm. the values of, of goodness mm -hmm. and truth and mm -hmm. beauty, mm -hmm. should we mm -hmm. say, to mm -hmm. say two, three mm -hmm. obvious ones. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much more the pioneer mm -hmm. of solutions mm -hmm. to, to unresolved problems. Yeah, it, it is, but they're not inconsistent with those, those uh, higher values as well. I mean, in, in some sense, I believe that the highest values within the university are, are you know, basically truth. And um, if, if you think about what goes into academic freedom, it's truth and uh, support for dissent. But uh, if you think about creating knowledge as creating more truth, then they're really not incompatible. But, but I, I guess that the thing that I want to put my finger on is, is the, the way in which and, and please correct me if I'm yeah. caricaturing, the way in which the engineering mindset, mm -hmm. that's to say, mm -hmm. here is a problem, uh, and our job is to provide a solution to it, mm -hmm. or here are a, a bunch of, shall we say, um, technologies, mm -hmm. and here is an unexpected use to which they could be put. If that's yeah, abs abs an engineering mindset, absolutely. Rather than being the poor relation, engineering becomes almost the centerpiece, the centerpiece yeah. because that, that imaginary that says our job is to create technologies, to put them to use, and to particularly to put them to use to solve society's unresolved yep. problems, becomes the heart of what research yep. fundamentally is. Yeah, in, in some sense that knowledge in, in service of society moniker is an alternate definition of what engineering is. If you think about the knowledge primarily in the physical sciences and, and applied math, then that is a pres prescriptive definition of, of what engineers are. So when, when we in the Pratt School saw 
you know, this uh, theme come out of the strategic plan, we were, we were ecstatic thinking, well, the university is embracing essentially the core, the, the core value of what engineers are all about. Um, but the, the fascinating thing about that, though, is that like the role I have the privilege of being in takes me across all lots of mm -hmm. different parts of the university. I'm not sure that's how the whole university understands the phrase knowledge in the service of society. Because I think it seems like the engineering school has really got a hold of the knowledge part of that. Mm -hmm. Whereas some other parts of the university have really got a hold of the service part of it. Mm -hmm. And think of it in, in, in perhaps more conventional service terms as yeah. service projects right. or... Uh, right. You know, hurricane relief, everything hurricane relief to reading with sure. children in local elementary schools to the right. whole, to Duke Engage, to, to, you know, to the whole sort of gamut of right. different. Do you see what I mean? There's yes, a I do. Difference I do. And, and actually, that's a significant difference. It's not just yeah. a, 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 you know, a, a, a rainbow of different interpretations. There's actually a significant difference right. there. Right. Of course, we're, we're very active in Duke Engage, and we embrace that aspect of the word service of society as well, but you're right, there's an additional piece that goes beyond what most of the other branches in the, in the university do, and that is solve large societal problems, right, and in that, in that way serve society. But by. solve them technologically. Well, it used to be that way. I mean, now it's become much more complex than that. So if you look at, uh, familiar to many in this room, the, the National Academy of Engineering's list of grand challenges for the 21st century, they listed things like uh, make solar energy economical, right? Well, as soon as you frame it that way, you say make solar energy economical, then it's not purely a technical problem, right? because making solar energy is. That, that's a physics problem, really. We know how to convert photons into electrons, but when you say that one extra word, now it involves aspects of business, but it also as involves aspects of policy in order to make it economical, and it involves aspects of human behavior in order to adopt a new paradigm. Paradigm, so you can see that these are technical problems, but problems that can be can be solved by technology in isolation. Well, again, forgive me if I'm getting into caricatures here, but I'm yeah. thinking of the engineers yeah. that I know best personally, yeah. and they tend to be people who are technically extremely good. When I, uh, when the smoke alarm in my garage is going off, and I have the faintest idea how to switch it off. Yeah. I'm thinking about my friends who are engineers, thinking, well, they can just do this kind of thing. They just, they never have any problems at home. They just, you know, they just go downstairs and it's down. And for me, you know, this thing goes on for days and <laughs> alarms the neighbors and so on. It makes conversation in the kitchen impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but, I mean, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I really love my friends who are engineers. But, <laughs> but, but sometimes, and again, this is a caricature, but it's, mm -hmm. it's not just a caricature. Um, some of those friends that are engineers tend to take a quite a, um, an engineering approach to other parts of life, particularly uh, what you might call, in a rather technical way, psychology, uh, and will tend to think of systematic ways to engage things. And, and what you've been talking about is that the grand challenges of our world mm -hmm. require technical skill, but they require some softer skills as well. I guess mm -hmm. the question I'd have for you is how do you lead an institution where people are largely rewarded for their technical achievements uh, in taking leadership in social problems where you don't just need technical solutions? Do you see what I mean? When all the rewards have been mm -hmm. for research and even for teaching, which 
which advances technical competence and accomplishments. And now you're, you're presenting us with the kind of challenges which require a whole different set of skills and dispositions. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a big question, and uh, I can answer it lots of different ways. So you're saying, if I can rephrase your question, saying how do I lead an institution that's traditionally been rewarded for uh, excellence in a narrow domain and, and lead it to be broader? And I think uh, in some sense the leadership comes from you know, the, the, the broader recognition of the profession that, that this is where our profession is going. And, and uh, the, if you compare the 21st century challenges to the 20th, 20th century achieve, great achievements of the National Academy, the great achievements were airplanes, uh, cars, uh, lasers, PET scanners, uh, they were devices. And if you look at the, where the profession is going, these, these grand challenges are in sustainability, um, security, um, uh, health, and joy of living. And I think it's easy to lead people in those directions because you, you look at those broad categories and say, you know, what do we care about? That's what we care about. And it, it's much more important to many people than um, some particular feedback on a, on a narrow metric. So I think that's the easy way to lead people is to say, look at the excitement. And in, in Pratt, there are faculty forming collaborations across disciplines to do things like predict and prevent pandemics. Why are they doing that? It's not because they think that there's going to be some uh, reward uh, to the ranking of their department for doing this, but because of the excitement of being able to, to do something as, as challenging as that and make a difference in the world and people's lives. And it's particularly easy to do that kind of thing here at Duke. I mean, it's part of the character of um, the people who are drawn to Duke, both the faculty and the students. And one of the things you really see in, in, in our students are two characteristics I don't see as strongly everywhere else is this, this, this um, loyalty to the institution, desire to give back, and this desire to, to have an impact on the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to lead people like that. So, uh, so again, this may be an unduly technical question, but as a dean of a school, um, I guess you've got a choice between whether you address these kinds of issues by broadening the range of your faculties mm -hmm interests mm -hmm. and experience, whether you go specifically for interdisciplinary faculty, for example, mm -hmm. who are you know, doing the kind of PhDs where you think, I'm never going to get a job because I'm not a specialist in anything, those kind of, kind of people, or whether you're actually spending more time making substantial partnerships with other schools. Mm -hmm. Rather than saying, we're never going to have all the skills here, but we're, mm -hmm. we're in a research mm -hmm. and the whole point of research university is that you get the opportunity to do interdisciplinary work. Do, do you see mm -hmm. what I mean? It, it sounds so. like you're thinking more, well, which, which of those is your, well, is your approach? Well, I think there's a, a general trend that we see that it, a change in the way interdisciplinary research takes place uh, from, you know, in the past we've been very productive with things like plumbing the interface between two disciplines. So the way you would do interdisciplinary research, you would find one discipline, marry it with another, and ask what problems could we solve that, that require us to work together. So biology and materials was an example like that. So you get bio-inspired materials, and it's been very productive. But another way to organize interdisciplinarity is, is around big societal issues, like the predicting pandemics. And then that, that, you know, that brings in a, a, an electrical engineer uh, who is uh, studying algorithms for pulling out small signals in wireless telephones. 
and applies that to picking out small signals from a genomicist of a protein that's been expressed in the body and uses that to recognize whether someone's been infected or not. So this is a different way to organize interdisciplinarity, and so it, it causes bridging across, across the disciplines. But you still need to build core competencies you know, in, in areas. Now, the, the, the challenge there is you know, how do you build in those core competencies, and there's, there's different ways to do that. Um, one example is in energy and the environment. We have this Center for Environmental Implications of Nanotechnology, and we, that, that endeavor of um, understanding nanotechnology, how it interacts with the, the environment, how it's transported, how it, how it affects the toxicology on, on living organisms involves all kinds of disciplines. So you can collaborate across those disciplines, and you can also hire some of that interdisciplinarity in. So we did both. We, we, um, uh, we hired a new faculty member this year, and he's a, an erstwhile chemist, right? But he's in civil engineering and jointly in the Nicholas School. And so we're, we're reaching out to do the collaboration across the disciplines, but we're also bringing people in with completely different backgrounds for an engineering school and plunking them into engineering. It, it, it gives me a bit of a headache. Mm. I mean, <laughs> the idea of what you must have to keep in your head just to be able to hold a conversation with most of your faculty <laughs> is, uh, I would say, a little bit demanding. It, it, it can be daunting to, you know, to keep up with the faculty. They're, they're, it's, it's, it is like working on you know, uh, the Discovery Channel for a living, right? You, right? you see all these exciting things that are going on. People are you know, curing cancer and exploring nanotechnology and building gigapixel cameras and all this stuff is going on. So uh, you, yeah, you struggle to keep up. It's what, there's an old joke about the, the shepherd who says, uh, Hark, I, I, you know, I'm, there go my flock. I must hurry to catch up with them for I'm their leader. And so that's, that's kind of it. And, and, but in terms of leadership, what does that, what does that require? I mean, it, it, I, I'm, I'm, still, I'm dwelling on the word you used mm -hmm. five, ten minutes ago, excitement. Mm -hmm. That there's a, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's, a, there's a sense of, there's a thrill about being mm -hmm. at the, the cutting edge, to use the cliched mm -hmm. term, to be you know, at the, the coalface of, of, you know, you've named four issues there, the, the joy of living, health, sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are the issues that every person in this room is struggling with mm -hmm. every day, probably, mm -hmm. in one way or another, either personally or through family or other connections. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a, there's a shared excitement and say a shared thrill. Do, does there need to be a kind of a shared ethos there, or can that be somehow taken for granted? Is that because one's facing issues that face that, that, that are issues for almost every person? Can you mm. can you take for granted that these are being um, that these are being approached with the same kind of ethos? I suppose I'm mm. thinking that. You know, part of the issue with technology is in some ways it's democratizing because if everyone's got an iPod, you know, mm -hmm. everyone can play the same sort of way. But, but on the other hand, if there is technology that's restricted to a very small elite, mm -hmm. it can be the opposite of, mm -hmm. of, of democratizing. And, and then it, you really need to have a pretty clear idea of what the ethos is. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you become a tyrant. The uh, digital divide, so to speak, uh, between the haves and the have-nots. Um, but that can be extended across a whole host of other issues beyond little gadgets. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so 
this is one of the reasons that uh, that at our recent Grand Challenge Summit that we co-hosted with NC State and Raleigh, we rolled out with NC State a, a new program, an outreach program, which we call the uh, Grand Challenge K-12 Partners Program. And the idea is to bring the Grand Challenge issues to the K-12 curriculum and get, get students engaged in it. It's not so much to attract students into engineering, but to educate uh, the populace and prepare them as a society to face these grand challenges together because that that ethos as you said it is not necessarily innate it's something that's that's learned and developed but uh, that's why we created that program and that's also why we created the grand challenge scholars program for our undergraduates which has uh, five components beyond engineering fundamentals so uh, that you have the engineering fundamentals, and then you have the other aspects you need to, to address grand challenges over the course of your career. Uh, one is um, entrepreneurship. Right? These things have to scale to a global scale, so there has to be a, an economic basis for it. Uh, one is international ex education experience, because these are global problems. Uh, another is service learning, because we think that social consciousness development is something we, we need to develop. It's, it's an ethos that you're not born with. Uh, the fourth is um, a hands-on research project related to the grand challenges, and I'm forgetting what the fifth is right now, but, but you get the idea. It's, it's to um, basically uh, uh, inculcate the, this group of students with that, that ethos that would uh, give them the skill set and the mindset over the course of their careers to attack these grand challenges. I mean, it seems to me the ones you've listed, those, those aren't just about engineering. Those could be transferred to almost any institution. Indeed, indeed, and it's, it's interesting to explore whether this Grand Challenge Scholars Program makes sense <clears throat> across Duke for, for non-engineers, right? So you would, you would imagine it would be the, those same components plus some engineering exposure, because you would need that. You, you need that that's automatic for the engineering students, but it's not for the other students. So. Could, could you say a little bit, more, maybe more personally, about your own experience of leadership, those who've who've inspired you, those who, if you like, have embodied those kind of five principles and the way that they've led institutions and, and, and when you, you know, got mm -hmm. the call to, to, to come and take the job here, or and if you were to get the call to come and run a medium-sized Asian yeah. country or something of this kind, I mean, whatever, whatever you might feel the call to do next, um, <laughs> um, who you'd be on the phone to saying, how do you do this? Uh, how did you manage to do X in a way that looked so effortless or yeah. impressed me so much? You know, who are the who are the people you look to as models for for this kind of thing? Well, you know, there have been several, and some I could still call on the phone. Some, unfortunately, I can't. So, my uh, my thesis advisor is one, is John Dawson, the late John Dawson, and uh, he, one of the things I learned from him was was management by humanity, and uh, the the example. The example he showed me was uh, there was a postdoc in our group at the, at the time, and his, uh, his wife was pregnant. Her family was in the Bay Area. And uh, uh, in order to get the support network, she had to go up to deliver the baby, and she was going to be living in the Bay Area. He was down here, down working in Los Angeles. And, and John just called up you know, a colleague at Stanford we had no particular connection with and, and said, you know, you know, I'm supporting this fellow, but he needs to be near his wife. Can, can you host him? And out of that grew a rich collaboration, which has produced probably the most productive 
period of, of his life and my life over, over 10 years was that collaboration between Stanford and, and our group on accelerators. And, and, and it came about not because of some advanced management strategy, but just doing what's best for the people that, that, uh, you're, that you're leading and, and working with. So, so that, I still believe in that, and I, care, I think that's a great example of how it works. What, you know, what's best for the people and the team is best for the institution as well. So, so that's one. Um, you know, other, other aspects of leadership management, I've been, you know, I'm not a student of leadership, but Warren Bennis's book uh, com and, and work on comparing leadership and management and, and some common themes that emerge are uh, the ability to tell a story. And, and the key thing is uh, ability to paint the picture that the future will be better than, than the present. I mean, it is a, is a key management thing. And then the, my own personal style that I, I think I add to that is, um, and this is something I learned from, from a, the, the fellow who hired me first, yeah, um, professor at UCLA, Chan Joshi, and he was always asking the question one step ahead of what you would normally look at. He was always, he was always saying not how we could, um, He's always asking, what could we do? What problem could we answer that would put us on the front page of our journal, right? And uh, it was always one step ahead. So I kind of think of it the same way in, in, in my leadership style. It's, it's rather than adv advancing the mission of the institution that you're leading, think about how you can do something beyond that. How can your institution advance a broader mission, right? So if it's Duke Engineering, how rather than moving uh, engineering ahead within the engineering ranks of other engineering schools, how can, how can engineering schools as a whole uh, advance the profession of engineering? How can the profession of engineering improve society? Uh, you know, a, a person I think who does this really well, Barack Obama does this very well in terms of thinking about, you know, how can, rather than advancing the US's position in the international sphere, it's thinking how can, how can we make this world better? Well, that naturally, if we do it, you know, advances America's position in, in the world sphere. So it's that kind of thinking one step, one step beyond your, your mission that I think is uh, the, the, my personal style on that kind of thing. I find it particularly helpful to have Barack Obama's phone number. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not something I need very often, but occasionally yeah. <laughs> it's, it's useful to have the reassurance um, that one's doing okay. Um, now, tell me about the subject of today is, is leadership in difficult times. Mm. Um, and we've talked a bit about the leadership half of that. Uh, if I could move a little bit to the difficult times half of that. Uh, clearly, over the last 18 months, a lot of people have experienced all sorts of uh, adversity. Could you say a little bit about how you see that, to some extent, institutionally here, mm. but also in, in terms of your field and the kind of issues we've mm -hmm. been discussing? Is this... I guess for everybody, there's been a question at some moment in the last 18 months where we've said, is this one of these ups and downs, or is mm -hmm. this telling us something mm -hmm. more significant? And if it's telling us something more significant, uh, you know, we've heard a hundred different theories on what it might be telling us, and I'd be very interested to hear yours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think much has been said about the, the fact that this is, these, these kinds of times are, are 
rare opportunities. You, uh, I forget who's, who this is attributed to, but the, the quote is, never waste a, a downturn, right? And, and uh, the idea is you can try things, you can do things now that, that uh, you couldn't have tried before when the, stat the status quo was as it was. Uh, you can uh, explore new models for potentially tech transfer to the outside world and, and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, the first thing we did in responding to these difficult times was was take stock of our core mission. And uh, when we were dealing with the downturn, particularly, uh, you know, starting in October 2008, um, which was the year 2008 that I came here, so it was not what I really signed up for, but it happened pretty quickly. Uh, we started by establishing some, bu some budget principles that were based on you know, our core values. So we started with, uh, we wouldn't, we would number one is not make any budget decisions that would, uh, that would harm the long-term uh, reputation and mission of the institution. Uh, number two is we would be careful that any decisions would not harm our present generation of students. Uh, number three was we would be careful not to interfere with new revenue streams because that's cutting off your nose to spite your face. We felt that revenue generation would be key to coming out of this rather than, than uh, expense reduction. And the last thing was to um, protect to the extent possible the, the Pratt, Pratt and Duke family. So when we laid out those four budget principles, then we went through the exercise in an iterative way in a, uh, in a fairly open process with the leadership and the faculty. Uh, the decision making was much easier and much clearer because you could evaluate each particular choice, the tough choices we had to make in light of those four priorities. And it made coming to consensus at least very easy. Not that the cuts were easy to take, but at least the decisions on which ones were most important became much easier. So that was, that was one thing that was, uh, I think, key to, to the leadership in the difficult times. But, uh, you know, so that's the, the, the negative side of, of the uh, difficult times. The positive side, as I mentioned, is there, there's all of these opportunities to explore new things. I think one of the things we recognize is that, this, that our economy today is driven more by consumerism uh, than by innovation than at any other time in its history. And so I think that calls, you know, the world is looking to us to sort of innovate our way into a more robust, greener economy. And so it's more exciting than ever, I think, to be an engineer. And it's more exciting for the other fields, too, because as, as we talked about before, engineering alone doesn't solve these problems. And, 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 and this, this issue about whether something's going on right now that is of, of longer-term significance, whether economically or, or socially, do you want to say a little bit more about it? Well, I, you know, I've, I think that uh, we, we do need to get out of this uh, consumerism-driven society for the long-term health of this country, and that, that's long-term. And, and, and uh, to do that, I think we need uh, new institutions that take advantage of this investment. I mentioned you know, that, that investment in, in uh, basic research at universities, if you integrate it over 50 years, there's a trillion dollars of investment in basic research. And as a nation, we allow that to trickle out as our PhD students graduate, we have, we have some mechanisms like small business uh, innovative research programs and things like that, but for the most part, they're fairly small investments. Uh, it, and we, we rely on chance for that to trickle out into society. And I think there's an opportunity now to invest in translation, to, to bridge that gap or the so-called valley of death between, these research, between the basic university research and, and commercial uh, products that benefit society. 
And the classic example of that is uh, MRI. If you, if you look at it, MRI was based on a physics discovery in 1947 of nuclear magnetic resonance, but it took almost 50 years for the first commercial device. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's a fairly big gap. There were, of course, some things that had to mature along the way in magnet technology and so on, but um, the, you know, the question is if, if nuclear magnetic resonance were discovered today in an engineering or physics lab, would it take 50 years you know, for, the next, for the product to come out? And is there something we can do to accelerate that? And I think there is. And I think that's, that's, that's the question that if we can figure it out, we can um, push Duke ahead, we can push the US ahead, it'll, it'll drive the world economy as well. There's one more subject. I'm, I'm going to ask a couple more questions about this subject, and I'm going to give you, you all, y'all, I should say, uh, a chance to, um, to ask your own questions. Uh, we've talked a bit about leadership in terms of uh, setting a, 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 an ethos, having a, uh, you know, clearly resourcing people and supporting people and helping collaborate in, in addressing social issues, often through technological and uh, other means. Um, just one, one question we haven't really dwelt on about leadership, which is uh, a more macro-ethical question about the society that, that's being created. Um, one, one, uh, uh, you know, one report I heard on the, on the radio was, was talking about how Young people today, I mean, it makes me feel terribly old to even use an expression <laughs> like that, but are much more likely to be comfortable sending a text or an email. Remember emails? They, we used to use those a lot um, <laughs> five or so years ago. Um, and much less likely to be comfortable with a face-to-face -face conversation, particularly if it's something difficult to talk about or mm. something of that kind. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I suppose that I just use that as an illustration of a of a way society is changing because we have all these technological ways of mm -hmm. communicating with mm -hmm. one another. Certainly, in you know, in Western educated society, uh, and somebody at some stage has to has to sort of look up and around. Mm -hmm. You know, like you've said, how mm -hmm. can we serve some wider issues here, not just the good of the engineering school at Duke? Mm -hmm. and say, what kind of a world are we turning into? And is that a good world? Not just how mm -hmm. can we keep it going for grandchildren and great-grandchildren mm -hmm. and so on, mm -hmm. which is clearly a noble aim, but mm -hmm. not quite enough in itself. It's what are we keeping going for the next mm -hmm. you know, subsequent generations? Are we keeping going something that's... A, I mean, you hinted at it in, in inclu mm -hmm. including the joy in life in, in, your, mm -hmm. in your general themes. Um, would you, could you talk a little bit sure. about that? Because, because yeah. you can imagine it, just as a, as a, as a physician might say, well, oh, my job is really to put a new heart on the patient. Mm -hmm. It's how they choose to live their life. It's really up yeah. to them. And an engineer yeah. could likewise say, well, my job is to create the iPod, yeah. is to create the MRI. You know, that, I mean, what do you expect mm -hmm. of me? Mm -hmm. uh, but, but at some stage, we do expect something of that person. Yeah, well, my take on, on, on that is, is this, that, that uh, all the technology and enabled means of communications have appropriate roles. But in the end, the most precious is the in-person and face-to-face, -face, the kind of experience that we're having now. And in my view, the, the technology supports that, that uh, preciousness by giving other mechanisms to 
to um, satisfy other needs, give you more time for that precious in, in person. Uh, this comes not just from my perspective as an engineer, but my perspective as an educator. And I, I take this view towards technology and in, in learning. Uh, we have all kinds of asynchronous technology for distance delivery and for web-based instruction. And my view of those technologies is they're all good as long as they are used to increase the value of the one-on-one -on -one in person time between the mentor and the mentee, between the learner and the teacher. And uh, if, if they are used to reduce that interaction, then they're misused. And we've seen that, and I won't mention it, but uh, one, of, one of the large state universities in the, in the UC system was uh, you know, experimenting with these large, large lecture classes and using all technology, and in the end, they found out and were and were courageous enough to be candid about it that what this did was reduce the interaction between faculty and students. So that's a misuse of it. But if you can use the technology to text or whatever to to get some of those other communications done to have more time for what's precious, then that's good. You also you can use the technology to do things that in person can't do, and that's good. The, a nice example of that is a, a study that was done with gangs in East LA. And they had uh, brought them in person to try to, to mediate, and they could get nowhere because there, there was an eye, eye contact problem where they would stare each other down and they wouldn't get to the point of communicating. They put them on video conferencing, and there was no longer an eye contact issue because they're looking at the camera and it's not looking straight at the other person in the eye. And they were able to, to communicate and break down some barriers there. So that's, you know, the medium was appropriate to the need. So, you know, I'm, I'm big on uh, electronic communication, but at, in, a, in its appropriate roles. That's very helpful. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, I think my lovely assistant here. I, 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 uh, how about that? We, we didn't. We didn't really. We didn't rehearse that. We did. We really didn't rehearse that. It just. It just. It's just. It's He's just naturally understanding. <laughs> I, I. I want to tell you this is. This is. This is going to be Gaston's last dean's dialogue as uh, as facilitator and uh, and all all many introducer and concluder. It, it's all, sad. Uh, which I think you. I think there must have been. Well, somewhere between fifteen and twenty uh, of these that Gaston. Gaston's going on to to great things, working for a wonderful organisation, uh, uh, engaging with. AIDS orphans in, in Africa in terms of empowerment and helping people run their own futures from very disadvantaged situations. So we applaud him in doing that. We're very cross that he's leaving. And uh, I want you to enjoy the last 10 minutes or so of his, uh, uh, his work in this along with a number of other roles. Anyway, time for, time for, for, the, for the first question. Uh, who would like to ask it? One at a time. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> uh, my question has to do with leadership. The title is Leadership in Difficult Times. I heard you express your uh, explanation about leading your department in this new capacity. If you were teaching a room full of students at Duke, getting ready to leave and go out into the world, how would you define leadership in 25 words or less? Well, you know, the first thing I would point out is that there are a huge variety of forms of leadership. So one of our mission statements for the Pratt School is we want to create the leaders and innovators of the 21st century global workforce through an engineering education. 
there are many ways that a student can go out and lead. They can be technically excellent in a very narrow field, but if they are the best in that field, that's leadership. On the other hand, they can be entrepreneurial. They can be uh, someone who uh, begins a new venture or brings together resources to a new venture and makes it happen that without them it wouldn't be there. That's, that's in my view, an a active definition of entrepreneurship and another type of leadership. So uh, th there's no one set 25-word no answer to, to what leadership is, but uh, there are certainly characteristics of a leader. Um, they, they basically are ad advancing uh, some aspect of, of their field or their world uh, through doing something that no one else is doing, right? So whether it's, you know, in a, a narrowly defined field of uh, biochemistry and, and making a new discovery, that's leadership. Or if it's um, um, you know, bringing together resources to... Um, um, create a new program through Engineering World Health where, where uh, one of our students created a program to train uh, technicians in every hospital and clinic across Rwanda uh, so that they could repair their own hospital equipment. That's leadership. So no, not one simple answer, but uh, I guess it's a little bit, I hope that's not a I know it when I see it type of answer, but, <laughs> but thanks for the question. Okay, I guess this is kind of for both of you, but for Dean Kay, um, can you think of a situation where the kind of leadership required might not be the kind that comes from um, engineers or um, from people under you? And for um, Dean Wells, can you think of a situation where the leadership required might not be the kind that comes from, I don't know, your <laughs> field or the chapel or something more in the... Uh, service, or I don't know. I don't really know how to describe. Mm -hmm. it you know, you know. One of the things I think is valuable about, it, great about an engineering education is it really does focus on problem solving, and uh, this, and it's a way of approaching problem solving in in, a, in the same way that everybody learns in a in a survey course about the scientific method. Very few people learn that there's actually an engineering method to problem solving, and so uh, I think that skill is is transferable and valuable as you go into any other uh, uh, aspect of of life. And so, uh, one of the great things about being an engineer is that you can um, uh, enjoy a, a good CD as much as as a person who's an English major, but also know how it works. So. The, 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 the answer, my own view and my own bias is that there's no limitation from being an engineer. But to, to your question, it, that by itself is not enough. But it, it, for some, some problems, you need uh, a breadth of perspective, so, some soft skills, uh, ability to tell a story, ability to persuade, a perspective on the world that engineering by itself doesn't give. But, uh, but I think. At the same time, the engineering uh, mind, the in frame of mind is actually helpful, even in all those other areas. Uh, well, I, I'd say, and I think you know this because you've sat in my class and heard this from me before, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, you, 
Um, there are broadly three, three conventional kinds of ethics. Uh, there's the ethics of principle that says this thing is, is just right, deal with it. The sort of Ten Commandments, you know, it's just the way it is. There's the ethics of consequence and outcome that says that, you know, you act so that the right outcome will come about. And there's the ethics of virtue which says it's really about what kind of a person you want to be. And uh, if one thinks of Wall Street, perhaps in the last 18 months or so, uh, you can say that the people coming from where I'm coming from are talking usually either about principle or about virtue, the first or the third. They're either talking about being a good person or they're saying some things are just right and some things are just wrong. But what we've seen Wall Street go through in the last 18 months is, is actually reinventing itself through an ethics of consequence. That's to say, you may not think trust is a good thing in itself. You may not think you care less about being known widely as a trustworthy person. But if you don't have any trust, you ain't got no economy. You ain't got no financial system. If you can't trust that someone's going to pay you the money back eventually, you ain't going to lend money to anybody. So, in a sense, it doesn't require people like me, you know, with, with my kind of background, to reinvent Wall Street. Wall Street will reinvent itself. May not be with the kind of values that I would want to bring to it, but it will reinvent itself because some things like trust would have to be created, even if you didn't have... You know, people saying that they were good things in and of themselves. So, I mean, I, I don't have any wisdom to bring to the issues of Wall Street, but I think Wall Street has sorted itself out and is in the process of sorting itself out, almost kind of from values created from below. So, well, let me follow up on this notion of the, the ethical aspects of engineering is that uh, I think, in, again, engineering has a, the engineering approach has a key, way, key role to play even in ethical issues uh, that may have no technical component. Uh, you know, ethical dilemmas are not between right and wrong. They're between right and right. They're between two core values that you have to decide which do I hold highest. You know, is it, uh, you know, is it the value of, of truth uh, that I'm going to, if, if it's a, say, say it's an academic integrity issue, do I hold higher the, the, the value of truth and uh, expose an academic integrity violation or do I hold higher the value of loyalty uh, and, and some friendship that, may, that might be affected by that. So uh, again, as you, as you deal with ethical dilemmas, and it could be in, in, in the workplace, it could be between um, uh, you know, maybe a safety procedure that that's, you've been asked to follow, but, uh, uh, but uh, that, that following that, sa that safety procedure would be so cumbersome it might compromise the competitiveness of the company and you've been asked to overlook it and if you uh, expose it, people are going to lose their jobs or something. So it's going to be, again, it's between core values of uh, the personal uh, and, and uh, some, something like the upholding truth. So again, engineering plays a role there because you, in the engineering approach you generate options. And you might think it's not, you might be able as an engineer to sort of approach this and say, let me generate possible scenarios and I can find a scenario that, that best upholds my core values. And in the end though, you have to prioritize what your core values are and make your choice based on which core value is higher because often they're very, you know, they're, they're very uh, admirable, valuable, admirable values in both cases, but you have to make the decision of which, is, which one is priority for you.
So, Dean Casagelos, uh, uh, if uh, so, why do you think that there are so few leaders of the United States, as a, the political leaders in the United States, that are engineers compared to other countries in the world, like China, mm -hmm. Europe, Germany? Right. Uh, they seem to be good in turning off the smoke alarm. So why they are not? Wow, it's, uh, yeah, you're right about that observation. I think uh, there's even I, I think there's a leader in India is, in, is an right now is is an engineer by background and and there are a lot. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure why that is. We've had a few examples over time. You know, Jimmy Carter was a nuclear engineer, and that that just hasn't been uh, as much emphasis. Senator Ted Kaufman now uh, is the only engineer in the Senate. He's a Duke grad. Um, you know, I don't think I have a good answer for your question, but it's an—it's an object. I acknowledge it's an observation that that it does hold true. There are fewer here than there are in other countries. And I, I'll ponder that, and we'll have to say that for another. Yeah, I find an irony coming as a newcomer to this, still relative newcomer to this country, that it's a—it's a country of empiricists, you know, who who really. I'll live life very close to, to evidence and experience, and yet it, it looks to its leaders for, uh, as storytellers. And, and it seems to me most of the presidents we've had, certainly the current one and the previous one, Clinton, Reagan, you know, to name uh, uh, several of the previous, <laughs> the, the, the recent ones, these, are, these aren't technocrats. These are, these are storytellers. These are people who become elected because they tell a story that the majority of the country can believe in. And in the end, that seems to be more important in this country right, right. than the sense of fixing it and, and getting it right. Even though, the, if you like, the, the discourse on a, on a regular, educated level is, 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 a, is a very technocratic discourse, it seems to me. But, but we look for our leaders to be able to tell the story. And, and, and that's, that's a, I think that's a good part of the answer, and it gave me an idea of, of here's some insight from my, my background. I'm, I'm half Greek, as you know from the, from the name. And uh, just to show you a cultural difference, there, there's, a, um, there's a bias in Greece, and as in many other countries, towards higher learning and confidence in people with higher learning as leaders. And to, to give you... A, a remarkable example of this, it's in the Greek constitution that if the, uh, as a result of the election that uh, majority government fails to form and there's need of an interim government, it's, it's the body of faculty from uh, the, the national university. That, that forms an interim government. And that, I think that's just a really bad idea, but nevertheless, it shows you a different uh, value system than, than in this country, right? It, what you said, we, we, value, we, we value the ability to, to tell a story and to, to, to describe a, an exciting vision. In other countries, they value more the, the, the higher learning that, that this person has, and they have confidence that that will lead to better decisions for their country. So. That I think it's partly that cultural difference, but the other thing is that you see engineers dominating in CEOs positions, so they they tend to go into other leadership directions uh, than government. I don't, I don't know why that is. That, I don't, that's a reflection of the engineer or a reflection of the voters. But last one, better pay. Last question. Uh, 
now that the world is moving to a less technical engineering mind, uh, is there any way that uh, the Pratt School of Engineering is going to move towards that side? I'm asking this because I'm an undergraduate. I was a Pratt student and I decided to transfer to Trinity mm -hmm. because I felt that the degree is way too technical. Mm -hmm. And what they teach us is always get to one technical answer instead of looking at the broad picture of what things you can do. I don't know if you know the problem of the barometer and measuring the... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Are we moving towards that way of thinking? Uh, I would say, you know, yes. But at the same time, uh, I think there's a recognition that our, our particular form of leadership that we have to contribute includes the, the engineering fundamentals and, and, and what that brings to the problem-solving arena. So what we recognize is solve the kinds of problems that society faces and, and engineers in our profession faces is we need students who have strong engineering fundamentals and the ability to bridge uh, to bridge to the other disciplines and work with teams teams from business and policy and, and human behavior and and, uh, and ethics and so on so that's where we're moving is is uh, is kind of both directions so you see that in things like the uh, energy and environment certificate program where students uh, get strong engineering fundamentals but then they go on to take courses in policy and the um, environmental science and then they bring that together in a capstone experience where they work with students from Trinity and they work in teams where each brings their own particular expertise to that problem so uh, we're not going to forsake the engineering fundamentals so there's still going to be that uh, I think the challenge for us is to convince students like you early on in the freshman and sophomore year that uh, this is these fundamentals are relevant to the, the kinds of things you're interested in. And, and sometimes we don't do a great job of that. That's our challenge. Okay, well, <laughs> it's a neat trick. Um, thank you for coming and, and participating in this conversation. We hope that this will spawn further conversations on these broader topics of, of common interest and concern. This is our last series in the year this year, but we'll have a Dean's Dialogue series in all likelihood next year. And I uh, invite you to look, look to the Chronicle and other advertising means to keep an eye on those. And let's thank our deans for letting us participate.
I was in the next room, which I actually do not prefer.